if we can have our Bibles open at Isaiah to start with before we get back to Acts. Martin Luther. I've seen pictures of him or drawings of him, obviously. They didn't have iPhones back then. And he looks a pretty dour sort of character. Doesn't look as lively as some evangelicals I've known and seen. But he wrote this at one stage and he must have been feeling a bit down himself when he wrote this. As long as we live in this veil of misery, we shall be plagued and vexed with flies, with beetles and vermin. That is, with the devil, the world and our own flesh. Yet we must press through and not allow ourselves to retreat or recoil. So... He was feeling a bit off that day, I think, the day he wrote that, to talk about beetles and flies and vermin. We know what it's like in the middle of summer to be consistently knocking flies away from our face and vexed by them. So, do you feel discouraged sometimes? Do you ever feel discouraged about the state of the world? perhaps the way Martin Luther was feeling that day, but more importantly to what we've just read. Isaiah, in his day, did feel that way. And he was getting rather distressed. But however, in the midst of his discouragement, in the midst of him feeling pretty upset about everything. He'd been talking to these Jews for so long. Some say about 40 years he laboured in the field, a bit like Jeremiah, Ezekiel and others. You wonder where they got the strength. Well, we know where they got the strength, don't we? we got it from this, they got it from the Spirit of God. But even so, even a Spirit-filled man must, it must overcome them at times, that they talked for so long and told them for so long about their wonderful God and what he will do for them if they would only listen. How many times through the prophets did God say, I will be your God and you will be my people? And how many times they did not listen? We have here a whole book and especially the Old Testament, of people who would not listen to their God, who had everything given to them, and would not listen and would not do what their God required to live in the land of milk and honey. So in the midst of this, God reveals himself in tremendous power, as we read in those verses. He reveals himself and gave, and gave great encouragement to Isaiah. First of all, in verses 12 to 14, we see that God is beyond all measure. 
Who can contain him? That's what he's trying to say. Who can contain him? In verses 18 to 24, he is beyond all comparison. No one or no thing can compare to God. In verses 25 to 26, God is beyond all rivals. Who or what can challenge God? And in verses 27 to 31, God is beyond all praising. So we must praise him always. We can never stop praising him. We only have to turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation. And what is the vision given to John? Around the throne of God, the angels and the elders are forever praising him. The cherubim and the seraphim are always bowed down with their wings covering their faces in worship. Never-ending praise. So he is beyond all measure. He is beyond all comparison, beyond all rivals, and beyond all praising. And we, ourselves, you and I, we are not to judge. We are not to judge by what we feel or by what we see. We are to judge by the word of the living God. It is those who put their trust and hope in him that will keep on striving forward when humanly it seems impossible. The last few verses of that stanza, what does he say? But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. As God encouraged Isaiah when he was feeling discouraged, likewise we are to be encouraged by the mighty God we serve. And that then should lead us out from this place to encourage one another in the mighty work that we are able to do for him. As Christians, as Christians and believers, we should edify. There's a good word, isn't it? We learnt that one last time I was here. Edification, the building up of the body. Edify, to build the house. Jesus Christ, the carpenter, knew how to build a house. And we are to be likewise. We are to be edifiers, encouragers. We are to be engaged in edification, building up everyone we meet, whether they know the Lord Jesus as their saviour or they do not. Let us look at such an encourager. So now we can... Go in our Bibles back to Acts, that book in the Old Testament, that, new, that one in the New Testament that tells us so many things that the first disciples did, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, having lived and walked and talked with Christ and having seen the resurrected Christ.
They went out in power to win the world for him. So let us look at Barnabas. Bar, B-A-R, Bar means the son of. Bar Jonah is the son of Jonah. Barnabas. So he is the son as Luke, Luke the doctor, records, Luke the physician of Luke's gospel. He also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And he records in, in chapter 4 and verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So Joseph, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So Luke describes Barnabas as a son of Paraclesis. There's a little bit of Greek for you. I haven't studied Greek. I don't pretend to be a Greek scholar. But a son of Paraclesis. That is one who encourages or one who exhorts. A son of peace. Nabas, N-A-B-A-S. Nabas reflects the Aramaic the Aramaic words for pacification and consolation. A one who pacifies and brings peace. A one who consoles. So by those two words, consoling and pacifying, he is encouraging. He's not stirring up the flock. He's not fighting. He's not gossiping. He's not, as they call it, what is it, being nibbled at. He's not grumbling. He's building up the flock. Luke is trying most of all to indicate the man's character. We find Joseph, sorry, sorry, Barnabas. We find Barnabas engaged in paraclesis, that is, encouraging and exhorting, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. With all their hearts. The name Barnabas was conferred on him by the disciples in recognition of his assistance to them and his ministry with them. It says back there in chapter 4 and verse 36 that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. So Barnabas came from a Jewish Cypriot priestly family he was of the tribe of Levi and John Mark who wrote Mark's gospel and John Mark was his companion and also John Mark was his cousin Barnabas was an early member of the Jerusalem church selling his property for the common good as we see back there he sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke, in Acts 14, verses 4 and 14, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, both regard him as an apostle. And we go back to the start of our reading where it says that 
He was a good man. He was a good man. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, says Luke. And this is Barnabas. So, on at least four occasions, on at least four occasions, Barnabas's warm-heartedness and spiritual insight and the apparently universal respect for him had momentous effects, momentous results. One, when the converted Saul arrived in Jerusalem. We all remember Paul was smacked by Jesus on the Damascus Road, wasn't he? And then he arrives in Jerusalem, only to discover, only to discover that the Christians there believe him to be a spy, to be a traitor, to be an enemy. And it was Barnabas. It was Barnabas who introduced him to those who were the pillars of the church, the pillar apostles, Peter, James, John. It was Barnabas who brought Paul to them and convinced them of Paul's conversion and his sincerity. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 27, but Barnabas took him, Saul, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus Christ. So number one, Barnabas went and found Saul and brought him to the apostles. It was Barnabas who represented the apostles at Antioch when for the first time Gentiles had been evangelised in large numbers. He saw this movement as a work of God and as a fitting place for the forgotten Saul whom he had brought with him to share his labours. So Barnabas knew that the gospel had to be preached to the whole world, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And we know, going on from there, that Paul's entire missionary work, Paul's entire work was to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Barnabas's third great contribution, however, was his full acceptance of Gentiles into God's kingdom by faith in Christ. Not through the law, not through circumcision, not through keeping the Ten Commandments, but by faith in Christ. Barnabas accepted that as a command, that the Gentiles would come into God's kingdom by faith in Christ. The journey with Paul, if you go on and you read Acts chapter 13 and 14, the journey there with Paul resulted in a chain of predominantly Gentile churches throughout the land. They went from Antioch to Cyprus, to Perga, to Pisidian, to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby, to Italia, and back to Antioch. 
And in each and every one of those places, they left a church of predominantly Gentile members, far into Asia Minor. But it also had its negativities. It led to an increasing Jewish opposition to what was happening. And for the church, for the Christian church and for Barnabas, it was a milestone. That whole journey, as we read in those two chapters. Up until this journey, he had been the leader. Paul was his protege. Luke's consistent order up to the departure from his own Cyprus is always Barnabas and Saul. Or... That's what he would say, Barnabas and Saul. But thereafter, if you follow the narration, he usually says Paul and Barnabas or Paul and his companions. It's a little bit like John the Baptist where the character of Barnabas enables him to diminish and the great leadership of Paul to rise. You remember John the Baptist telling his disciples to follow Jesus because I must diminish and he must increase. I must decrease and he must increase. But Barnabas had one crucial task to perform. Back in Antioch, the question of circumcision, the law, had become so acute that Paul and Barnabas were called there to bring the matter to the Jerusalem council. Again, see, the Jews were arguing and saying, no, the Gentiles cannot come into God's church unless they do the same as we do. They must be circumcised. They must follow the law. And so this was having great effect in the church. And so... the. They came back to Antioch, Barnabas and Saul, and appeared to the Jerusalem council. And if we look further ahead to Acts 15 and verses 1 to 29, we'll see that Barnabas' policy was triumphantly vindicated. Barnabas' presentation was more significant than Paul because of the fact that he was the original apostolic representative in Antioch and he carried greater weight with the Jerusalem Council. So Barnabas had a great job to do and we see that he has done it there in those four wonderful things that he did. But after this, after this, there was a falling out. There was a falling out between Barnabas and Paul. On a proposed second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, his cousin, with them. But Paul did not, because in that earlier journey, John Mark had deserted them and left them to their own devices. He had deserted them for no reason, and so Paul did not trust him anymore. So, but Barnabas wanted to persevere with John Mark. So they parted. They parted company. But the close partnership, although it was broken, their friendship was not. And whenever Paul speaks of Barnabas later on in his letters, 
It is his words that imply sympathy and respect for the man. In principles and in practice, Paul and Barnabas were identical. And we shall never know how much Paul owed to Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So, are we sons of encouragement? Are we Barnabases? Are we Barnabai? That's the plural of Barnabas. Are we sons of encouragement? If we were to ask what should we look for in a leader, some would say, well, a leader is someone who has the ability to identify what needs to be done, the ability to communicate vision, to mobilise people, to motivate people and get the job done. But others would point out that leadership is more than getting projects done. Some men in wartime became great leaders. Men that others would say of them, I would follow him into the gates of hell. So that is one sort of leadership. That is heroic bravery. But others would point out that leadership is a bit more than just getting the job done. It is, in our sense, it is leading people to where they need to be in the formation of their character and the development of their lives. You probably can't do that in the heat of battle if you're running to, towards the enemy. But that is another aspect of leadership, leading people to where they need to be in the formation of their character and in the formation and development of their lives. I think that's the sort of leaders we need in our church. And that is what we see in the life of Barnabas. The wonderful thing about Barnabas is that he was not a Peter. We all know that Peter was pretty rash. Peter often said what he said things without engaging his brain, didn't he? And he ran in where angels feared to tread. And Barnabas was not a Peter. Barnabas was not a Paul. Paul, again, was vastly different down the track to what Barnabas had been. So Barnabas was not a Peter and he wasn't a Paul. And nor are most of us. We are not asked to be Peters and Pauls. Barnabas moved quietly in the background, in the shadows as it were, and exerted a tremendous influence. And we can do that as well. Each one of us can do that. Let's go through his character. It was said he was a good man in Acts 11.24. It says that Barnabas was a good man. How many funerals have you been to where the eulogy may have said that he was a good man? And many people sitting in those pews looking at that coffin and, and, and the eulogy goes on to say that he was a good man may well believe 
If they are not believers, they may well believe that he was a good man, so he will go to heaven. You and I know that that does not open the gates to God's heaven, just being good. But here it says, Barnabas was a good man. If we go back to Mark chapter 10 and look at verses 17 and 18, one day the Lord Jesus was confronted by a young ruler asking, Good master, what must I do that I can have eternal life? Jesus didn't answer him straight away, did he? He said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. In Romans, Paul quotes approvingly of what Isaiah said. There is none good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet here, in this chapter, in this verse, Barnabas is called good. Is that a contradiction? Well, I don't think so. When Barnabas is described as good, a good man, it means he was a man of solid moral and ethical principles. When it speaks of God alone being good, the Bible is referring to perfection. Perfection. When it speaks and says that Barnabas was a good man, it doesn't mean he was it doesn't mean that he was perfect or he was sinless but that he was a moral and ethical man who lived consistently by his principles it is possible for an ordinary man an ordinary fallen human being who is less than perfect to learn how to develop a moral and ethical principle and to live consistently according to it now we know that Barnabas was a Levite. So, that means he was thoroughly, thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the first five books, the book of the law. He knew them backwards. So his moral and ethical principles were biblically based. They originated from God's self-revelation, from God's character. So Barnabas was a good man in the sense that his life, his life reflected the moral and ethical principles of God. So he was a good man. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24 also says he was full of the Holy Spirit. Scripture gives us a very succinct statement about being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5 and 18 when it tells us not to be drunk with wine but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, there's an obvious rhythm here. We are not to be captivated and motivated and activated by alcohol, but we are to be captivated and motivated and activated by the Holy Spirit. By implication, Barnabas exercised his spiritual gifts and he exhibited the fruits of the Spirit as described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. What kind of leader then should you be becoming? Should each of us be becoming?
an ethical and moral person, high-principled, exercising your gifts and attitudes in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And he was full of faith. He was full of faith. And that means two things. First of all, his mind was fixed on certain truths that he had heard, evaluated and embraced convincingly. He had embraced them wholeheartedly. And second, his actions were based on those beliefs. For Barnabas, it wasn't just a recognition, a cognitive belief, but a daily experience. He lived in conscious enjoyment of the truths that his mind had embraced. In other words, he had embraced all of this. I know he didn't have the second part of it, but he had the whole lot. He had the whole lot of the Old Testament and he had embraced God, God's truth. He had embraced all of that. And we need to be the same. We need to be able to embrace, because we live on the other side of the cross and we need to be able to embrace the whole truth that is in this and nothing but the truth. And these qualities, these qualities, he was a good man, he was full of the spirit and he was full of faith. These qualities so impressed, so impressed people that they called him the son of encouragement. His name was not Barnabas, it was Joseph. But there was a fragrance about his life. He was an uplifter. He was a renewer. He was a refresher. He was an encourager. When Barnabas moved through an area, people would look at each other and say, wasn't it good to have him around? So his friends said, we're not going to call you Joseph anymore. We are going to call you Barnabas, a son of encouragement. And that's the kind of person that God wants us to be. That's the kind of person that God wants me to be. That's the kind of person that God wants you to be. We may not have the limelight, but we can walk and we can work quietly in the background, in the shadows, uplifting and encouraging others. We may not produce many Peters here or many Pauls, but I would love to think that this church is a breeding ground for Barnabas. Let's make lots of Barnabases. So let's look at this son of encouragement. Character, think about character. Character is what God knows you are. Reputation is what people think you are. There can be an enormous difference between the two, particularly in our culture. In our culture today where so much emphasis is placed on image or me, the I generation, the great thing about Barnabas is that his character and his reputation were very much in step. We see his influences. We see his influence in encouraging the church. In Acts 4, 32 to 37, there was a generous spirit about Barnabas. It's a relatively easy thing to be a taker in this world. But what a joy to find a giver 
such as Barnabas. He sold his property and brought the money to the feet of the disciples. So he encouraged the church. He then encourages someone who is on the outer or who is ostracised. And of course, this is his part when he says, let's reach out to this guy, Saul of Tarsus. Let's reach out and love him into the kingdom, which he does. And then he goes around and he encourages someone who has failed. In Acts 15, 36-41, Barnabas gave up travelling with the great apostle Paul in order to pour his life into this wobbly kid called John Mark. So if it hadn't have been for Barnabas, we might not have had Mark's gospel. We might not have had Paul's letters. Who can you encourage this week? Who can I encourage this week? Let's look at encouraging others. And we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 8. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of living in today's world. How easily we can become down in the dumps. We can become stuck in a rut, cast down. We can have the blues. The wind can go out of our sails. Our bubble bursts or it rains on our parade. How easy we can be discouraged. So we see in these few verses from Thessalonians that there is a need for encouragement. In verses 1 to 5, we need encouragement because of the trials of life, the temptations of Satan and the turmoils of our emotions. And then we go on to look at the focus of encouragement. And the focus of encouragement should be spiritual truth, spiritual fruit and spiritual stability. And we practice encouragement. We encourage others. We encourage others by listening, by praying, by being transparent, by expressing appreciation, challenging others, and above all, sharing God's word with others. One of the best ways to overcome discouragement is to focus on others. So who can you encourage this week? Let us cast out discouragement from our lives and we can go right back to Deuteronomy in chapter 1 and verse 21. Each Christian has a personal ministry and many people exercise that ministry in the context of a local church. So bear that in mind. Each Christian has a personal ministry and most people will exercise that ministry in the context of the local church. You can be a Bible study leader, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, whatever. But beware of Satan's greatest tool Satan's greatest tool in our work is discouragement. He wants us to become weary in well-doing. He wants us to become weary in well-doing. There are three reasons for discouragement in the ministry. 
Three reasons for discouragement in the church. Number one, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. If we do not pray and commune daily with God, we fall away. Biblelessness. If we do not read this book consistently and often, we become discouraged. And thirdly, a lack of passion for the lost. If we will not pray, if we will not read our Bibles, we will not have a passion for the lost. So we have to overcome that. Satan wants us to be weary in well-doing. And often he does that because he keeps us so busy doing little things in the church that he keeps us away from prayer, he keeps us away from our Bible, and he keeps us from caring for others. But our greatest weapon, our greatest weapon is faith in the specific promises that God has given, that our work for him is productive. If you feel discouraged, just remember, the Lord himself is with us. We read this in Haggai chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4, especially verse 4 where he says, And work, for I am with you. His word will not return void. Isaiah 55, 10 to 11. It will accomplish what I have set it out to do. My word will not return void. So we have got to be prepared to speak this gospel out, to spread this word. And our work is not in vain. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you know your work is not in vain. Let us not become weary in doing good. And we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. For at the proper time, we read in Revelation, then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. The results of our ministry will outlive us. Let's go back to Martin Luther on a happier note. Everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. He was definitely encouraging. We must continue to be faithful to our Lord and to his church. We must continue to give our Christian testimony to those who are unsaved. We must continually try to be genuinely Christian in every area of our lives. God will bless our faithfulness with success. We not only walk by faith, we work by faith. Don't give up. God is using you in ways greater than you can know. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we are ashamed when we remember how so often we hurt most of all 
those whom we ought to cherish most of all and how we treat our nearest and dearest in a way in which we would never dare to behave towards strangers. Grant that it may not be so today and in the future. Take away from us the carelessness, the selfishness, the inconsiderateness, the untidiness which makes the work of others harder than it ought to be. Take away from us the lack of sensitivity which makes us hurt the feelings of others and never even realise that we are doing so. O oh Lord, take away from us the habit of unkind criticism and of nagging fault-finding, the temper of crossness and irritability which wreck the peace of any home. Take away from us the disobedience which brings anxiety and the disloyalty which brings sorrow to those who love us. Grant us, O oh God, that all through today and the days to come we may speak and act in such a way that we will bring nothing but encouragement and happiness to those whose love is our privilege and whose friendship is our joy. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.